Hey there, thanks for coming. Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show, where we continue our unending quest to change the world, talk to other people who want to change the world, or generally have conversations that you can listen to that could then inspire you to go and change the world. That's kind of our theme we're going for. So this week, um, I'm going to speak to somebody who I've known for about 10 years now, but in the last few years, his journey has been remarkable. Um, He was particularly successful in the world of corporate business and consulting and sales and that sort of thing, but in the last few years, um, started to step into the realm of public speaking. Um, Since then, he's become the president of New Zealand's uh, National Speakers Association and is now the president-elect of the Global Speakers Federation. It's an organization that represents tens of thousands of speakers around the world um, who have influence in places like business, but also um, in uh, public organizations, um, and has a lot to do with thought leaders, people whose words and actions have the power to really influence the way we do things. Um, Elias was incredibly candid about his journey, and so I know you're going to take a lot out of this conversation with Elias Canaris. When I have thought of people that I want to approach for this podcast, I've looked at people who I've known have had an interesting journey, um, and I think also have a shared passion for developing people. And so when I called my guest today, he said something to me over the phone that's going to stay with me for a while, and I don't know if you even realize how impactful it was, but one of the first things that you, Mr. Elias Canara, said to me was, how can I serve you? And that was, I was undone because I have very much been pursuing uh, how do we make a difference in our world and, and break away from, I guess, what we see as the common themes of how people are managing one another's lives and out, and out to pursue what's best for me and mine. But your approach was, how do I serve you? So I guess I wanted to start today with how did you come to this place of, of seeing service as such a high calling? Um, and we'll talk about how, of course, you, you came to the different roles you've had and, and places of influence as well. But yeah, tell me about service. What does that mean to you? Well, Andrew, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here with you. It's an honor, a privilege to uh, spend some time with you and with your audience. Um, great questions you asked me. And, and I suppose as I, as I look back at my journey, I've come to realize that we live in a very uh, dysfunctional world. Mm. Dysfunctional because at the moment it's an iPhone world, it's an iPad world, it's an iii world. Mm. And recently, uh, one of my mentors, um, Mike Hancock and Landy Jack, approached me and said, Elias, we're starting a new movement called the Conscious Leadership Movement. Mm. And the mainstay of the Conscious Leadership Movement is hashtag youism, Y-O-U-I-S-M. Why don't we go back to the main premise of why we're here on earth, which is relationships. You know, we talk about uh, B2B, C2C, what about H to H, human to human? Right. You know, uh, we talk about um, uh, high tech and we're, we're sitting here with some amazing technology in front of us, uh, broadcast across the world and the airwaves. But if you've got high tech, what's that useful for mm. if you don't have high touch? Sure. And that's where, for me, growing up in a Christian household where we were taught to serve, we were taught to um, you know, respect our guests, especially our elders, mm. uh, to the point, and, and, and please bear with me because 
I, I, I'm quite a bit older than you, Andrew. <laughs> and, and, and some of the things I'm going to share with you date back to the 60s. Okay. I know well, I've heard well, of the be, 60s. You've heard of yeah, them. Yeah, they were after the 50s, weren't they? They were, and I actually yeah, lived okay. through the 60s. So okay. Oh, I, well I, done. Some know. people didn't have the same success. So anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so back back in the 60s, my dad, when we were living in, um, in North Africa, a small country you might have heard of, you might not have heard of, called Libya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, made very famous by... Um, Colonel Gaddafi, or Uncle Mo, as we like to call him (laughs) ourselves. Uh, My dad used to say to us, look, um, guests are coming. Your responsibility, kids. And we were literally, you know, not quite toddlers, but just a bit above. Our responsibility was to serve our guests. And that meant we organized the drink for uh, Uncle uh, Andrew. Mm -hmm. And literally, you got to know that he had a scotch on the rocks with Mm -hmm. three pieces of ice. Right. And you went to serve uh, Auntie Teresa and you got her drink, mm. which is probably ouzo with some water, no ice. Even to the point that you used to offer them a cigarette and you used to light the cigarette up for them. <laughs> so this is the 60s before political correctness and everything yeah, else that sure. so we now understand about that. But, but the concept of serving has been part of my DNA since I was brought up. I think it's a concept that uh, I'd relate back to, to my faith. Uh, mm. I'm a Christian, as you know. Mm. And to me, it's about how do we serve people? Jesus, the ultimate example of service and mm. serving uh, leadership, serving servanthood leadership in the world. So I hope that gives you a bit of a feel for, you know, why yeah. that's a default action for me. Yeah. So if I look at what you're doing now, um, and your, you know, your role within the speaking community too, um, and this cause uh, that you're driven by, um, tell me about the journey to get to this point though. Um, and you can go into as much or as little detail as you like, but I mean, I do know a little of your background in terms of being involved in the corporate world and those sorts of things, which is, I think, traditionally not seen as an environment where this notion of service is well represented or even respected. And that little smile on your face says to me there, that's probably true. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. What was what was that experience like? Um, I, I started my career off in the UK. I spent 25 years from 1970 to 95 before I came to live here in New Zealand. So my career started off in predominantly the IT telecommunications sector in the UK mm. and a lot of sales and marketing roles. So I got involved in the aspect of presenting. Mm. Uh, salesman, you're always presenting, you're always on on show, I suppose. Mm. Well, over the years, uh, when I came to New Zealand, had some roles in the corporate world, leading uh, strategy teams for Telecom New Zealand, uh, working as a senior consultant for companies like Genai, uh, before I, I left the corporate world to to get involved in politics and then, you know, have my own business. Mm. But along the way, I became a subject matter expert. So I'd be invited to a conference. And you go to a conference and people will say to you, that's fantastic, Alice, we really enjoyed it. Here's a little gift. And they give you a bottle of wine or a um, uh, a little sort of plantling in a little yeah. pot so you can go take home and plant in your garden. And one day maybe you'll have an acorn tree, I don't know. Right, right. Um, so a couple of years um, ago, uh, a colleague of mine mentioned that, uh, you know, said, oh, I see that you, you, you present at different conferences. I said, yeah, I do. He said, you get paid. I said, well, you know, bottle of wine, uh, the, <laughs> the, the plant that I get to take home. Yeah. He said, no, 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 real money. I said, there's money in this industry? Right. 
And when somebody's sort of uh, identified that this is an industry that you can actually get paid mm. to share your information, mm. that's what took my interest. And, and through my journey with National Speakers Association of New Zealand, the Global Speakers Federation, I have um, understood that we can make a difference through the spoken word. Mm. In fact, it's the most important um, differentiation between us and and you know, the rest of the, the creations on earth, mm. we have that ability to speak and we have that ability to form words. In fact, if you go back to the Bible, God spoke the word into mm. being and the world into being. Mm. So to me, when I look at the National Speakers Association, we have a, a purpose statement, which is very simple, mm. to help others to truly excel well, what could be better than that mm. as a purpose for serving others helping them to truly excel in whichever field it is that you're involved with mm. so a bit like you i get involved a lot of leadership and developing trust in a business context so to have that journey has been a real eye-opener for me and i tell you what I'm unemployable right now, Andrew. <laughs> I don't think anybody would have the courage to give me a full-time role. So happy in the speaking industry. Yeah. So hearing that again, though, that, that goal, that objective for the National Speakers Association of, of again, to basically to help others to excel. Um, I want to come back to that point, though, that if you compare and contrast that with the corporate world, that idea of helping another person um, as opposed to helping yourself to excel are... Uh, two statements that seem a little incongruous. So how did you experience that? And, and what was your way of addressing that, that value differential? Again, you asked some great questions, crikey. If I knew it would be this tough, I wouldn't have asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so l let me take you back a little bit in my journey as, sure. as uh, in the corporate world. So uh, I used to be a senior consultant and uh, to give some context, uh, we looked after the top 24 clients for Genii, mm -hmm. who between them were billing $450 million a year. Wow. Now, uh, to contextualize that, the next 3,200 clients that sat below that <clears throat> yeah. combined billing was slightly over twice as much at a billion dollars. Oh, right. So we're at the pointy end of the business. Now, my role as a senior consultant was to go in and to work with a client. And I used to come back and I noticed a, 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 an emerging trend mm. that each time I walked in to have a meeting with a new client, I would come back and see my boss and say, boss, maybe I should get one of those, you know, um, all-in-one disposable painters outfits. You know the ones you just slip into the yeah. little zip in there and a hoodie? Uh, yeah, right. Well, because each time I walked in, the client would throw up all over me. <laughs> They, they, they yeah. just, it was the broken promises from the last account manager, the, the things yeah. that the clients, that, that we, the supplier, had never done for our clients. Mm. And I said it would be cheaper for me to take off this all-in-one unit <laughs> and just throw it in the rubbish bin <laughs> than take my suit to the dry cleaners every week. And that's when I realized that it's all about relationships. It's all sure. about how do we go in there and add value? How do we go in and listen mm. to what our clients have to say mm. to understand that they have a voice Mm. and that that voice is being acknowledged and that we're buying into them and we're not just trying to sell, sell, sell mm. and, and do a commodity, get, you know, cash the check and, and then walk away, mm. but start to build trust with people so we can have a sustainable relationship that goes beyond that one interaction. Yeah. So then 
making that practical, what were some of the things that you, you started to do to, I guess, to rebuild that trust and build that relationship? Well, first of all, um, I had to go and remind people that uh, my name is Elias Canaris. Mm. It's not Bill Smith or whoever the, the oh, last account manager Bill was. Smith yeah, strikes again. Hate I know, oh, yeah. How does he keep getting work? Well, this is the <laughs> frightening thing. Um, but you see, when, when people understand that you are a different person. You're going to be measured by mm. your performance, mm. by your results, by your deliverables against your promises. Mm. So I do not want to be tarred by the, the brush of a, a previous incumbent because mm. nothing worse than sitting there trying to, um, you know, be measured against somebody with, mm. a, with a negative uh, connotation. Mm. So the first thing is divorce me from the, the other p the person mm. and mm. then start to build trust because trust has to be earned and it's not just given straight away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me more then in terms of building trust, what were some of the things that you did? So as I mentioned before, the first thing is to start to listen, to yeah. ask open-ended questions. And um, I think Alan Pease summarized it very well with questions are the answers. Mm -hmm. If you walk in and in his brilliant book, I'm not sure if you ever had the chance to read that, uh, he, he identifies five key questions. Okay. And he says, if you ask these five key questions, you can get your client to tell you everything mm -hmm. that they need. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, as I look at this, the, first of all, you, you probably start off with a list of, of items to say, look, here are some of the benefits of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not features, but benefits of what you can do by working with me. Mm. And whether you're involved in finance or network marketing or uh, services, telecommunication, whatever it might be, you can identify the, the maybe five, 10, 15 uh, key benefits of, of your products and services. Mm. Ask your client to have a look at this list mm. and then ask them to choose which one is the most relevant for them. Wow. Because if I walk in with a list of 10 or 15 items and I, and I look at you, analyze you just from your bodily right. appearance and say, well, you know what? If, if uh, for example, the top five might be uh, more money, extra time, um, uh, travel, um, holidays, sure. uh, whatever it might be, you know, I can mm. pick something for you, but chances are I might only be 20% right, wow. 80% wrong. Wow. If I do that and I take you down a pathway which is wrong for you, mm. how are you going to then treat my relationship? Would you trust me? Yeah, right. People will buy from you and get to know, like, and trust you. Mm. So I think about this to say, give them the opportunity to tell you what they want. Mm. And from there, ask them the other questions that explores in their words, why they want it, why it's important to them, what are the consequences not having it, mm. and what needs to happen to take to the next level. You see what I love about that, what you were saying is, it, it speaks to a lesson I've learned myself over the last little while, particularly about how assumptive we really are. Um, in that we do, we want to be the guy who walks and looks around a room, says, I know what you need, bam, 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 and then walks out and he's like, yeah, nailed it. Uh, first of all, you probably didn't nail it. Uh, <laughs> and, and then secondly, too, to, to be in a position to ask another person to tell you exactly what it is that they need, or at least to start on that, that, that journey. Um, so much of the, I think it's a, a Seneca quote that talks about, you know, we suffer more in our imagination than in reality, um, where you look at a person and you say, oh, I'm putting off a conversation with somebody. Well, because I know when I talk to them, they're going to say this. So yep. what, what, what are they? Um, or when I go and see this client, they're going to behave this way. Um, and yet when you're taking that approach, like you're mentioning, it says, well, look, what if I come in with no agenda? What if my goal is 
and we joked about this before we started recording, but, uh, you know, it's this National Speakers Association, not National Listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, from what you've said, listening is very much a part of that. And to go on and say, if my goal is to listen to you, not to talk at you, and preempt what you might want to say, I can actually have a more powerful conversation with you. Well, if you, if you consider, and I know that you do quite a bit of coaching through your own work, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew, um, I learned the lesson when I was a senior consultant. I used to walk in to an organization and I quite often would turn around to the, uh, the staff, usually at, uh, starting at the executive level and then through the organization. And I would say, look, I'm going to give you a magic wand. Mm. And with this magic wand, normally you'd have three things you could change. But with inflation, it would cut it down to just two. (laughs) But if there's two things you could change, what are the two things you would change? And people would then tell you what they would change. And most Mm. of it, to be honest, um, was surrounding communications. Okay. That's one of the most critical components in in any business. Mm. But I made another statement during my consulting phase that said... I might not know all the answers, Mm. but I know how to ask the right questions. Right. Now, if you take that concept and then apply it into a coaching environment, um, I've been very blessed that, that I can that I can look at an environment, I can assess it quite quickly. Uh, one of my strengths is I'm a strategist. Mm. So I can see the big picture and I can quite easily determine what needs to happen, what needs to change. Now, as a, as a coach, if you walked in to a coaching client and you dictated to them what you can see is the blindingly obvious. Right, right. And you tell them that, guess how much change occurs? <laughs> I don't need to guess. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at big donut there, yeah. zero doesn't get changed. But if you get them to explore themselves and mm. discover in their own minds mm. through the right series of questions, mm. that's how you can uh, really make sustainable change. Mm. And anybody who tells you that, you know, you're going to get coached and it'll, it'll be five sessions and, you know, bingo. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. It makes, it makes a great Tui ad, if you ask doesn't me, it, you know. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I guess the way I've looked at that for myself is to say that the most powerful thing you can do for a person, um, and again, confession time for me, um, there was certainly a period of my own life where um, knowledge is, makes it does make you feel powerful, uh, and it's kind of addictive in that respect. And so being able to walk into a room and feeling like you can fire off like a, you know, uh, on the on the wild west, bam, 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 there's all my ideas, boom, solved all your problems. Um, you know, I was very much of that approach, be the one to give the advice. Um, but in recent years, really learning that for real transformation to occur, another person has to see their own thinking. Yeah. Uh, and that is not the same as me telling you what your thinking is. It's revealed through questioning. Um, and so even asking a person, I mean, even simple little things, fundamental ones, like, so what do you actually want? can be one of the most disarming questions when a person suddenly goes, oh, gee, I don't really know. So, well, how am I going to help you? Oh, I guess, oh, yeah, that's a good point. That has engendered far more powerful change from a person. I mean, it's like, you know, you see anybody with a habit say, I'm going to point out your flaws so you can work on them. <laughs> oh, lose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it amuses me. Uh, so many times you hear people say, well, so what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Sure. Focus on your weakness and, you know, build yourself up. We, we, we hear the, the, the great analogy of um, uh, Michael Jordan, you know, the oh, great sure. basketball player. Uh, how many times did he practice the, 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 the shot? And, you mm. know, if you, don't, if you don't practice it, you won't get better. 
I know that people like uh, one of my mentors, John Maxwell, will, will encourage you to work on your strengths. And strengths are important. But how do you understand your strengths? Right. That, that was a challenge that I had. Mm. So, you know, you talk about confession time. So I suppose, well, we were in confessions. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Father, please forgive me for I have <laughs> sinned. Uh, I remember walking into uh, a role as a general manager here in Auckland. So I was in that environment quite literally. I sat there thinking I had the title, the position, mm. and therefore people needed to give me respect, needed to follow the pathway that I dictated. Right. Now, a short while after that happened in terms of the role and the position, uh, I met a mutual friend of ours, uh, Yvonne and Simon Godfrey, mm -hmm. who through their business uh, led me to a personal development pathway mm. that had two books that were incredibly, incredibly influential on changing my thinking. Mm. The first book was called Personality Plus, mm -hmm. and the second book was called The Five Love Languages. Oh, right. Now, as I worked my way through, um, in the role, I had a real clash of of personality types with one of my managers, my marketing manager. Mm. And I used to come home and I used to complain to my wife, Kay, saying, oh, so-and-so, they just, oh, they frustrate <laughs> me. They really, you know, and we worked our way through this, this is going for months. Yeah. Then I came across the books and started reading Personality Plus mm. and started to understand the personality type, sawing that uh, both of us uh, were, were a similar type. Now, uh, Ali Mooney, one of my good friends uh, from uh, the speaking industry, has rewritten the book uh, entirely titled it Pressing the Right Buttons. Mm. And she talks about being perfect, uh, being uh, precise, being playful, uh, or being uh, peaceful. Mm. Now, uh, I was a, a very um, uh, sort of powerful person myself, as was my marketing manager. Mm. But when I realized how I behaved and how my marketing manager behaved, it started to affect the way that I interacted. Right. And about I mean, maybe two, three months later, I remember walking home one day, having a conversation with Kay and saying, wow, you know, my marketing manager has, has improved so much. <laughs> it's funny you should laugh because that's exactly what Kay did. She looked at me and she said, do you think she's changed? I said, of yeah. course she has. She said, no, no, she hasn't changed, Elias. You've changed. Yeah. And you, yeah. sometimes you don't realize the change that goes within you mm. until somebody's able to point it out to you. Yeah, that is so, I mean, honestly, I, I laugh more out of a, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> Than a, than a laughing, it's a laughing with, not a laughing at. Um, and actually that, that point that you touched on the end is, is so powerful, particularly when I have spoken to people about leadership in so far as the reactive approach is to say, everybody else needs to change their behavior towards me. How do I control another person's behavior? And uh, even in, in literally the last couple of weeks, I've realized how deep that mindset still runs with me. With There's still certain topics where I, I will stress myself out thinking, how do I talk somebody else around on whatever it might be? And, you know, you just can't do that. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, somebody once said to me... Um, you know, the National Speakers Association. Yeah. They thought it should be called the National Ego Association. Right. Because you have so many people with such big, uh, you know, egos. Uh -huh. And they quite often, whilst incredibly talented people, mm. can be very directive in terms of how they encourage their audience to do things and they, they almost, almost dictate to them. Okay. And you see that lots in some leadership where... Um, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, and then the follow-up, How the Mighty Fall, mm. talks about hubris. And, and right. really the, the, the most effective 
uh, leaders are those who are as humble as pie, mm. who are able to turn around and say, I don't need the, the corner office with the big view. Sure. In fact, he references an organization that had their CEO um, l literally residing in part of the building that was inaccessible. You had to take a lift to get up to his office. Yes. And uh, heard, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was one of the big financial companies, wasn't it? Um, I think it was Lehman Brothers. Could it could very well yeah, be. Yeah, but he had his own private elevator so that he could get into the building, to, up to his office, and yeah. never see anybody. Absolutely. I, I mean, can you can you imagine something more frightening than that? How yeah. how how egotistical and insular can you be? Maybe that that that's a reflection of a lack of self esteem and self worth. That mm, that maybe wow. you can't uh, sit there and, and handle somebody else's opinion or view. Sure. And from a leadership perspective, you've got to have that hubris, that, that humility to turn around and say, hey, how do I engage with people? How do I get them to buy into me before they buy into my vision? Mm. Because it doesn't matter how good a vision you have, nobody's going to buy into that until they buy into you. Yeah. You've touched on something I think actually would be wonderful to have expanded on. And this idea of humility uh, and how that relates to confidence. Um, in my observation, um, particularly, say, our, our culture, that we have a means of achieving confidence through a lack of humility. Um, but I've also observed that it is possible to meet truly humble people who are truly confident. So what's the difference there in your observation? Well, I guess the fundamental uh, difference is having somebody who's, uh, who's grounded and, and centered. Okay. So do you, do you, can, you, can you love yourself? That's mm. the first question I would ask. Okay. My journey has taken me uh, literally around the houses, uh, around the block a couple of times and back again, <laughs> uh, up and down the mountain, you know. Right. Um, my, my, my background is not a pretty one. Um, what's, the, what's the rating on this uh, podcast? Yeah. Okay, so I was brought up. Let, let me give you some context for my family. My dad was born in Jerusalem. Uh -huh. My mum was born in Bethlehem. Right. Both of them... Christians, Orthodox Christians. Yeah. So you talk about Christian Greek Orthodoxy. They're probably the most um, religious right. type of Christians that you have. They're mm. very rules driven, uh, and it's almost like Orthodox Jews who mm. who used to have the letter of the law. Sure. Now, growing up in a household in Libya, North Africa, uh, I was the youngest of three siblings. My dad was very dominant, mm. and that was the culture that he came from. Sure. So as I was growing up, I used to be called an idiot. Right. Not just once or twice, but all, all the, the time. time. Yeah. Now, what I didn't realize is my dad called everybody an idiot. He wasn't just, you know, passing <laughs> that, that praise and glory just solely to me. <laughs> But but he was yeah. literally going out there. The the uh, the taxi driver was an idiot. The dairy owner, even the cat was an idiot. Right. But as a young boy growing up in that environment, you get you get sucked into that. So how does that affect your self esteem? Mm. It makes you feel really bad. In, in fact, um, uh, it's alleged. My mum told me this that when I was about four or five years old, uh, I turned around to her one day and said, "Mum, can I can I have a knife so I can." stab my dad in the back and kill him wow now andrew honestly i can't tell you if that's a a true event or a planted memory mm. but my mum used to repeat that story over the years to anybody who would care to listen so how did that affect my relationship between myself and my dad mm. well i reckon it was pretty rough <laughs> yeah yeah 
didn't like him, didn't respect him. Uh, I, I had this feeling that, uh, you know, I wanted to kill the guy. Yeah. So um, one of my, my siblings asked me, he said, well, what was it like living in the UK as the youngest, you know, the last one there? I said, well, well what do you think? You know, um, if you look at the world and, and you have London, England up here, yeah. I went all the way to ooh, Auckland, New Zealand, yeah. the opposite <laughs> end of the world. Right. Because at the time I was self-sabotaging my career, my relationships, uh, yeah. my, you know, whatever it was, my finances, I couldn't control because that lack of self-confidence. Mm. Personal development has helped me to stabilize and center myself, to get more self-confidence back. Mm. I still question myself on a daily basis, mm. but I know that it's not through... Uh, my strength that I do things. Yeah. It's not that I am the smarter person than anybody else, even though I am. But we, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there. Right. Uh, but it's because uh, you know, I you know. I talk. I joke about being smart. When I was at school, I was at the very bottom of my class. Sure. The whole way through school. Mm. Yet, uh, if I do an IQ test today, uh, I, I'm actually. Uh, you know, relatively close to the top. Yeah. Sure. But when you don't believe in yourself. Mm. Mm. How can you then affect change? How can you uh, be humble because yeah. you're always trying to attack others because mm. of your insecurity? Mm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, I kind of want to sit in that for a little moment because that, that idea of when we meet people who are um, acting out of that um, can often appear very aggressive. Um, but I think the essence of what you said too is that really you need to observe that behavior as defensive. Um, no matter how loud or active it might appear, it, it really is driven by a defensiveness, um, which would change your approach to somebody like that and I suppose even give you a little more compassion for them too. Look, for sure, I think you've got to analyze everybody, see where they're coming from. Yeah and see where they're currently at. Uh, and it's so easy for us to turn around and uh, judge people. Mm. Uh, we all do that. Um, but the question is, are you judging from who they are? You, we've all heard the story of um, uh, a man traveling on the subway in, in New York, mm. and he's got his two young kids with him, and they are absolutely running riot. Yeah. And another gentleman on the subway looks at this man, he says to him, you know, can't you control your kids? It is really unnecessary that they should do this. And this man with the two children looks at, at the fellow passenger and he says, you know, you, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was distracted uh, only this morning. Their mother passed away. Right. And I, I've been, I've not been looking after them properly until you know where somebody's been or where they're at, mm. how can you judge them? And you have to be willing to extend a hand to somebody to mm. touch a heart. Mm. So you've got to turn around and and show people that you're compassionate about where they're at. Mm. And it's so easy for us to just assume things about people and then make an ass out of ourselves. <laughs> I'm so glad you touched on that assumption thing again, because that, that was what came back to mind for me too when you were mentioning that that idea that when we see a person we know why they are that way um and particularly uh in our culture you know we're coming into an election cycle as well let's go into politics Elias. why not <laughs> um but this this idea particularly if we're looking at say people who are in a different stage of life than we are i was going to say the poor but you could say you know there's the poor there's the there's the super wealthy there's the whatever but there is an assumption from every seat that I know what drives that other group of people. And if they would just dot, 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 then everything would be fine. 
Um, and so again, we see those who are poor and say, well, if they just got a job, uh, you know, we get, see those who are super wealthy and say, well, they're obviously corrupt if they just, whatever. I mean, these are just things I've seen in, in papers in the last few days, but understanding, taking time to actually talk to people and finding that, you know, that's the great leveler in my experience that you suddenly realize how similar everybody really is. Has that been your experience? Look, uh, absolutely. I think, um, uh, I was just trying to remember the analogy. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Landy Jack, um, talks about uh, IBU. Uh, I think it's, I, I can't remember the full um, con- context. Mm. But there are uh, the I in IBU, IBU, stands for imprints. What are the imprints in our lives? Mm. Because you talk about our understanding. If only the, the uh, poor got a job. Yeah. You know, if, if only the rich, they, they weren't all corrupt. Yeah, right. Where do these thought patterns emerge from? Wow, what a cool question. Yeah, well, yeah. look, I tell you, it made me think when, when Landy, uh, uh, you know, challenged me with, with myself because um, I had a conversation with uh, a chap recently and I, and I was talking, coaching them about uh, business. Mm. Now, incredibly capable individual. Yeah. who's got, oh, I'd say 30, maybe 40 years of experience uh, in the transportation sector. Mm. Now, their expertise um, could take them into a consulting role, mm. but their lack of self-worth stops them from doing that. Right. So I started to challenge them about what was their very earliest view on business. Okay. And they shared that uh, their dad had a milk round. Yeah. So I said, I said, tell me more about the milk round. So uh, here in New Zealand, when uh, you're talking about 40 years ago, you know, what would happen for the milk round? You used to walk around and pick up all the milk bottles Mm. from somebody's doorstep. And you used to drop your 10 cents or your uh, 5 cents into your milk bottle or your penny, whatever it was back then. And that was the payment for the milk. Mm. Now, imagine a milk bottle often has residue of something that was inside of it which mm. was oh milk yeah has been sitting out on the doorstep <sighs> in the heat so you got money with milk that is fermenting and rotting yeah, right oh geez. what does that do to the money and the first comment he said to me was oh it all stank it was dirty Right. So the, 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 the imprint from an early age huh. is that money is dirty because yeah. his job was to clean the money. And he said it was such a smelly job. It was, it was awful. Yeah. So where are your imprints coming in your life? What are you doing to, to mm. uh, start formulating your thinking? Mm. And then the question is, how do you brainwash somebody? Literally take them there and scrub out all the bad stuff. Yeah, right. And then start to make them understand there is a different perspective and that if they look at it from a different viewpoint, you get to see the better part of what the possibility is. Mm, mm, I love that. I'm going to go back in time, though, because something actually did show up for me when you're telling that earlier story about your own life that just I decided I need to ask the question to. You mentioned your mum repeated that story a number of times. Why do you think she did that? Uh, great question. Um, According to a conversation I had with one of my siblings, uh, there was an indication that at the time there might have been some sort of domestic abuse. Now, I do not know how much of that domestic abuse was around within our family. Mm. Um, There might have been evidence of, uh, uh, you know, bruising on my mother's face from time Mm. to time. But the culture of the time, and I'm, hear me right here, Andrew, I'm not defending domestic violence. In fact, uh, I have quite um, uh, strong feelings against <laughs> domestic violence. Yeah. 
but there could be the culture of the time yeah. created that environment. Now, the interesting situation is that my mother had this real habit, uh, bless her soul, she passed on in 2009, uh -huh. um, and she had this habit of, of walking into a room, and let's say you're a, um, a, a female friend, mm. she'd see you and she said, nice dress, you look fat. So she would say things in a way that, you know, she didn't realize she's actually insulting you. Right. And they just came out in, in a way. So once you've understood that about you, you could, you, could, you could treat her differently. Now, why do I share all this? Because even though my mum had this viewpoint, mm. maybe caused through some sort of domestic uh, uh, abuse or, or violence uh, uh, in, in the past, I realized that for me to develop and go beyond where I was at. Mm. I needed to reach out to my mother and my father and both seek forgiveness from them mm. and give them my forgiveness for any perceptions I had yeah. about the way that we behaved. And that happened to me back in 1998, yeah. uh, sitting, uh, having heard uh, three cassette tapes, cassette tapes, you know, <laughs> showing, my, showing my age now, that changed my life and led me down that uh, personal development pathway that, that has ended up where I am now yeah. uh, as president-elect for the Global Speakers Federation. Uh, that first, first tape that I heard was uh, Zig Ziglar. Uh -huh. And Zig Ziglar was talking about um, sales. Okay. Wow. Wow. I was sales and marketing. I was general manager at a car leasing company. So that really impacted me to think of sales in this perspective. The second cassette tape, couldn't, even, couldn't wait for that one to go in, was John Maxwell talking about leadership. Yeah. And John has been one of my biggest mentors in my personal development and leadership path. Mm. But the third uh, cassette tape was a chap by the name of um, Skip Ross. Uh -huh. And Skip talked about unforgiveness. Wow. Oh, it... I was undone. I, I was driving around Auckland in my company car and I was bawling my eyes out because basically what Skip said is unforgiveness is like eating poison but expecting the other person to die. Right. And I thought, you know, time for me to stop eating poison about my dad because that's killing me. Yeah. Stop eating poison about my mum, what she said. That was killing me. And I had to sit there at the airport, of the, um, you know, waiting by the gates in Sydney on a flight to Melbourne in mm. 1998 and write them both personal letters yeah. to seek their forgiveness and to forgive them. Now, I think that was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because... It, it healed that relationship. Yeah. Uh, I had the best relationship with my parents, I think, out of uh, all of the siblings. Yeah. And it helped me to carry on with my life. Yeah. Gave me permission to believe in myself for the first time in my life. And how did they respond to? Oh, they were incredible. Uh, my, my dad passed away uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. My mum back in uh, 2009. Mm. And uh, both of them still had the original letters that I sent through. <laughs> wow. You know, it was there. You could go and pick it up physically, read it. So mm. it, it was such a positive thing for us all. Mm. Actually, an insight I had on that front recently too, which lines up so well with that, um, was when it comes to those kind of a situations, I observed in myself anyway, that when, when we are wronged, which does happen, um, there is a belief that says that, well, when the person who wronged me apologizes, when they come to me and say, hey, I'm really sorry, uh, whatever it is, then, you know, I'll let things go and blah, blah, blah. And then we'll reconcile things, basically. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, you mentioned a few times too, you, you know, in reference to your faith as well, which, you know, obviously we share in that respect too, but something that, that I saw and then changed my approach on that was that if I look at the example of Jesus for myself, I see someone who the wronged party was the one who instigated reconciliation. And that really hit me because the amount of righteous indignation you can carry uh, knows no limit. Um, and the number of experiences you can have that can justify that. But realizing that actually, if you as the wronged party are prepared to go to the person who wronged you and say, hey, so you know, I don't hold anything against you, um, is incredibly powerful. And I've even realized too, from the other side, it, when you have wronged another person, you, you, you kind of know it. Oh, yes, you know? and, certainly. And, and that creates a barrier that makes it very hard I mean, look, where, where I am aware of where I've, you know, transgressed, I do try and resolve things with people as well. But I am also aware that that's quite a difficult thing to ask of somebody, to know that somebody else probably doesn't like you, may even hate you, and, and you may have given them very good reason to. And then to say, okay, well, then that person has to go to the person who now hates them and try and reconcile things. So let me take you back in time um, and give you some history, mm. which I think has been very influential in my life. Right. Uh, bearing in mind that I, I said uh, earlier on that uh, allegedly I wanted to kill my father at the age of four or five. Mm. Yet my father, who was a senior bank officer, mm. uh, worked for a bank originally for Barclays Bank in the Middle East and then uh, for British Bank in the Middle East, which is part of Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Mm. In his role as a bank officer, he actually held the role of embezzlement officer. Okay. Now, now, yeah, that, that's a very <laughs> peculiar title, you'd say. <laughs> now, what, what he used to do is he used to go around from branch to branch in the Middle East to investigate uh, corruption. Hmm. And there was a lot of embezzlement of people who would steal funds and, and siphon them off to other places. Now, my father had a, a real gifting in terms of reading people. Okay. So he used to walk, uh, he used to travel around with his friend, uh, Johnny, Johnny Walker. Um, usually black label, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, 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 Johnny, Johnny, medicinal purposes, because yeah, you know, yeah. you, can't, you can't trust the water. <laughs> Well, it's yeah. just being practical, Elias. It's absolutely, just being practical. absolutely. Now, now, right. now, him and Johnny we used to go there, and they used to take people out that he suspected. Yeah. And he used to figure out who were the right people that would give him access to the information he needs, because there's always a, a mole somewhere who's going to spill the beans. Yeah, right. Now, what I observed of my father over the years, and I didn't get to understand and appreciate until quite late in my career towards the end of his life mm. was the influence he had on me because he used to turn around and say Elias be the bigger man mm. always be bigger if somebody else has transgressed against you go to them and tell them that you forgive them and ask for forgiveness right so you take that ownership that's what a leader really does that's what yeah. a leader goes oh, through and yeah. and shares that viewpoint you know um, a client of ours uh, years ago said um, don't do don't do things right do the right thing mm. and doing the right it's a subtle play in words mm. but doing things right is following process and sure. we, we need to follow process but sometimes you've got to do the right thing and the mm. right thing is breaking the rules to get a resolution to a situation mm. and if we understand that 
premise, mm. then as a leader, we can do a lot more good for ourselves, our community, our organization, uh, and the, the world. So mm. it's about doing the right thing because that's the right thing to do. Mm. So then let's talk about more about doing the right thing because that's one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning, right? Part of your um, main projects at the moment is this idea of getting the world to do the right thing, I guess one person at a time. So why don't you tell me then about that? That's, I guess, the, the latest incarnation of that thought. Yeah, so um, the the conscious leadership movement is something that is in its infancy. Uh, I was invited to be one of the, the first uh, 100 members of the conscious leadership movement. We're now up to about a 1,000 members worldwide, and we'll be launching the, the, the program uh, in October 2018. We really want people to understand that uh, it is about figuring out what is the right thing to happen. I have to say that if I look at my progress in, in my business and my career, I never would call myself a greenie. I'm not, I'm not a tree hugger. Right. So when you talk to me about issues such as global warming, I would say back in 2009, 2008, I'd say bar humbug. Right. I didn't believe that there was a global warming problem, mm. but I do believe that we need to be more conscientious about how do we treat our planet. Sure. Now, there better people placed than myself to turn around and tell you about the issues mm. with the way we manage uh, um, uh, agriculture and uh, you know commerce and its effect on the planet. I'm not going to debate greenhouse gas emissions or anything along that, those lines. Yeah. Number one, because it bores me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, because I don't necessarily understand it. But I can debate with you, what are we doing that's affecting the way we treat people? Yeah. That H to H. Yeah. What are we yeah. doing that's causing trafficking of women or young children? Wow. What are we doing that is uh, empowering bad behavior? Mm. And what what are we doing that uh, um, influences the next generation through our sports stars and their behavior? And how do we then pull it back in and say to them, well, look, you know, it's, it's not all right. It's not all right for you to be the, um, the, the star quarterback or running back in your, in your uh, football team in the States and um, have, have parties where there's, you know, tons of alcohol and drugs or whatever the case may be. Sure. And that leads to some significant issues. And they say, oh, but he's such an important person. You've got to excuse mm. him that. No, we have to be accountable and held accountable, oh, it's a horrible word, accountability. Uh, I, I was told once, you know, why don't you become the accountable leadership guy? And they said, because people <laughs> just do not want to be accountable. It's, it's the kind of thing where people would all acknowledge that accountability would be really great for that other guy. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know who really needs that, not me. Yeah. <laughs> so then what are some of the some of the some of the actions then that uh, you mentioned there's a um, a program that will be coming next year as well, uh, but in terms of this conscious leadership, let's talk more about that. What does that look like for an individual right now, um, in their in their families, in their workplaces, uh, whatever they might be involved in? What does the expression of conscious leadership look like? Look, that's that's a great question. I think it's still an evolving uh, entity. So. Um... For, for individuals, it's about how do I stop thinking just about me? Right. That's the very first starting point. Mm. How do I look at uh, what I'm doing and how does it affect other people? Um, 
I look at great work uh, that we, we, we do in our community as an example, where we go out to uh, widows, we go out to orphans, we help them, mm. and we make a difference. Mm. Now, if you go back to uh, one of the principles that we talked about before, which is what, what were the teachings of Jesus Christ? Mm. I remember a couple of years ago going through a phenomenal journey, um, getting, getting saved, getting planted into a church, uh, having my wife turn around to me and say, hey, Elias, I've just been down the beach. Um, and you have to understand, Andrew, at the time she was a consultant uh, earning six figures mm. uh, in the work that she did. And she said, I, I was talking to God and, and God said to me, um, Kay, it's time for you to give up your job and look after the kids. And I said, really? <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. great, honey. Yeah. Uh, really? Uh, so, so as we did this, um, you know, a, cu- a couple of days later, I got a phone call from a client and the client said, um, we've seen your proposal. Yeah. We love it. The board says, when can Kay start? And I said, you know, to be honest, uh, she might be on another assignment. So I phoned Kay up. I said, yeah. Kay, Kay, clients called. They've asked this, you know, it was six weeks work, $40,000. Whoa. And she said? Nope. Yeah, you got it. Wow. So once I stopped crying, I, <laughs> I, called, I called the client back and, and told him. Now, I say this because a couple of uh, months later, we had a water baptism. And during the water baptism, God says again to Kay, he says, mm. in two years' time, you'll be debt-free. Okay. Oh, man, I was in my element of oh, yeah. debt-free. So for the next 18 months, I took everything under my possible strength to become debt-free. We're going to do this, that, and the other, go uh, Emerald Diamond and get bonuses through Amway. No, no, that wasn't it. I was going to get uh, you know new business opportunities and climb the corporate ladder. No, no, that wasn't it. I was going to, I was going to, that's right, downsize my home until, until we saw the little shoebox we had to live in. And no way we're going to do that. And then I eventually figured it out. I was going to win the Reader's Digest prize draw. <laughs> the envelopes kept oh, on coming. Now, Suddenly it all makes sense. Now, yeah. I ended up with a very simple situation. Uh, I was at a leadership weekend and somebody uh, at church was saying, hey, um, uh, the scripture came up along the lines of, give me your burdens and take on mine. Mm. So I looked at God and I said to him, okay. So this idea about going debt-free was your idea in the first place. Right. You might as well do it. Huh, huh, huh. <laughs> I'll show you. Absolutely. Right. And I gave it back to God and I said, so what's your burden? He said, be salt and light. And I said, yeah. well, what does that mean? Nice. Now, the scripture came up, uh, I think it's in Matthew 12, which says, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was right. naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? Mm. That I can understand. And that's what I think conscious leadership is about. Mm. How do we treat other people mm. in their situation? It doesn't matter that I'm the president of like the Global Speakers Federation or that uh, I am a member of my congregation at church mm. or I'm a father of my my uh, children and my household here at home. I have to be able to treat people in their situation, uh, roll my sleeves up, get down there and get dirty. Now, my role in the Global Speakers Federation uh, in July 2018, uh, I take over as president, mm. where we'll have the opportunity to influence up to 50,000 thought leaders around the world. Right. Thought leaders that are currently in the boardrooms of the likes of Google and, and Microsoft and Apple and HSBC and GE, etc., etc. Mm. What could we do 
if we take the conscious leadership movement through our thought leaders back into the boardrooms that affect the major corporations, how they treat their suppliers around the world, how they empower their employees to think, mm. and how we can then start to break all the um, trafficking issues that we've talked about, or all the uh, the, the the pollution issues that that lead to um, you know death amongst people, because water is the biggest killer of people today polluted water what can we do that will make a change and make a difference so that to me is how i see conscious leadership being rolled out over the years so what's in it for you oh very simple uh, i had a vision that, that got hidden away which simply said to positively impact a million households around the world Mm. So to me, it's if I can start to get this message out there and ripple it out, uh, then I can I can turn around as somebody once said to me, but you're such a small thinker, Elias, a million households. So let me get the first million sorted out, then we'll go to the next seven billion yeah, right. that are left out there. And that to me is the reason why I do this, Andrew, and that's mm. what's in it for me. Yeah. So again, making this a, a more of a tangible thing as well, how will you see um, when you're looking at those households what what is that going to look like for the way that they they live their lives day to day um to to me uh looking at that is the the change in the way that we uh interoperate with other people to have more respect for people uh, around ourselves to understand that uh, uh we can't just walk past uh, a beggar on the street mm. and side step them so we can get into mcdonald's to mm. feed our face mm. but to uh offer to take a, a scrubby vagabond mm. and to love on them mm. and if we can translate that not just from me here in new zealand but for anybody anywhere around the world they can see that they can make a difference mm. that to me will be the the ultimate um uh, sort of delivery of this on a global basis and to see this thing, this four-letter word, word that uh, uh, never gets mentioned in business, love, L-O-V-E. Yeah. What can we do if we reintroduce love as the principle of business, the currency that we all use? Yes, the shareholder needs to see a return <laughs> on investment, but wow, could we have a better place to live in if sure. love was out there? You see, I love... I love Huh. Um, hearing the emergence of that kind of thing and in, in, in my you know my journey my observations of um, where business is at um, I have been very encouraged to see that thought expressed in, in, in different terms from a lot of different people um, if we're looking in a historical level and in fact this was discussions I've had recently with people that uh, you know up until say around the 60s and 70s um, businesses had more of a, a sense of a burden of care for the people that worked for them. And then through the 80s and 90s, the, the profit motive became the number one thing in returning shareholder value. Uh, and we have experienced now, you know, 30 or 40 years of that. And it feels to me, from where I sit anyway, that we are starting to see the, um, the foundations of that system crumbling. Because we've realized that you can't I mean, one of the simplest ones is, you know, when people talk about, you know, business is business. Uh, Realise, well, actually, you can't tell a person that I'm going to treat them differently because they're in business than I would treat them if I'd met them yep. out on the street. Yeah. So I need to start introducing that same, the same things that I would say, this is, this is what makes me a good neighbour, uh, a good father, 
uh, sun, whatever, um, are also the same things that make me a good business person. So I'd like to expand on that. And thank you, Andrew, for, for uh, shifting the focus slightly. Let's look at business and let's look at my journey in the Global Speakers Federation. Yeah, please do. Uh, I joined the speaking industry in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, in 2018, eight years, eight short years after I joined the industry, I'll be leading the industry. Mm. Now, I say this not to impress you, but impress upon you that your journey can be fast-tracked. And why was my journey fast-tracked? Because of a conversation I had with a lovely lady who said, Elias, we need a representative from New Zealand to go to the Global Speakers Federation, be on their uh, board. And I said, can I find out more? She says, yeah, absolutely. If you want to expand your business and you want to be seen uh, to have an international reach, and who doesn't want to have that from New Zealand? Mm. Go invest in yourself and offer to serve. Mm. And that was the best advice that she gave me. So four years ago, when I received this advice and uh, the, the Global Speakers Federation for the first time appeared on my horizon, I said, I'm in. I then invested uh, in flights because I had to pay for my flights, my accommodation, my registration to the uh, Global Speakers Summit, which was being held in Vancouver. And six, uh, six weeks later and $6,000 on, I was there mm. out of my own pocket. Yeah. to then meet people who are influencers around the world and sit at their table and just listen to them and learn from them. To the point that I've now been to 13 international conventions, mm. I've visited five different countries, and I am now on the uh, precipice of uh, taking and supporting our current leadership in, into the next generation. What can we do if we volunteer and we serve? What can we do that will help us to help others because as a result of looking to serve, I've received a business income out of this. Mm. I haven't gone out there looking for the business. I've looked to help people. And when you help people, people notice what you do. If you do good, good will come back to you. Whatever you sow, you'll, you'll reap. If you sow apple seeds, you're gonna get apple trees and apple uh, fruit. You're not gonna get oranges. <laughs> yeah. So you gotta understand this. What are you sowing into other people that's gonna come back as a fruit into your life? And to me, the benefit has been phenomenal. I've not gone out there seeking it from the ego, mm. but uh, rather uh, trying to deliver from the heart mm. of this is what people need. And I think, they're starting to pay dividends, mm. and I uh, and I pray that I'll continue to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll probably finish off with uh, um, one of a number of, of scriptures that are close to my heart, and I think it's Proverbs 22, mm. 29. It says, show me a man that excels in his work. He shall stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. And I'm now sitting less than eight years from joining the industry at the table with the kings because of what God has put into my life and what my dad has taught me to do.
been here for years. I'm rocking my peace. Put 